Well, if you would please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. We're beginning at verse 30, and this uh, actually uh, opens up a rather uh, lengthy section in Mark's gospel, a section that has to do with the life of a disciple. Mark chapter 9, beginning at verse 30. Uh, Good morning to you. Uh, Welcome to Covenant Presbyterian Church, and a special welcome to those of you who are joining us by uh, live stream. Uh, Thank you. Uh, so very much. Little theologians, if I could have your attention, I'd like for you to draw something that is often ignored. I can probably be a little bit more clear. Little theologians, did you notice that all of the speakers in the sanctuary have been changed? Did you catch that? Draw something that we just tend to miss. We don't notice. So, thank you, little theologians, for being here. So, Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 37. Let's uh, pray together before the reading of God's Word. Please pray with me. Holy Father, we don't deserve to be spoken to by you. You're the creator. We are but creatures. You are independent in every way, and we are dependent in every way. And yet, Father, you've condescended yourself to speak to us in words that we understand, in words that could even be captured on the printed page. You have condescended yourself that you might speak to us as children. Thank you for making yourself known in your holy word. Give us understanding by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. So again, Mark chapter 9, beginning at verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing? on the way. But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. This is the word of our Lord. Well, I want to begin with a point of ourselves that is not necessarily something we want to talk about, and that is our selfishness. And I want to use an example of when you are thinking about something that is unknown in the future, who are you most interested in taking care of? I think all of us, myself included, would say, by and large, when I'm thinking about an unknown future, the one I'm most interested in taking care of is myself, my family, but really it's myself. And so we prepare our own house for a coming storm, 
I can't make my neighbor do this, and if I'm going to help my neighbor, I'm going to take care of myself and my family first. We, pre- we prepare for our family when we're thinking about our retirement. We hope that our neighbor is thinking about their retirement as well, but I'm going to think first of all about myself and my family. We take care of our car. We change the oil uh, regularly. We wash it, make sure it's running. I mean, I can't do that for my neighbor. My neighbor's going to have to do that on their own. Now, you can correct me and you can say, well, yes, of course, but the Bible also says much about personal responsibility, and that's important, and it is important, and it is taught in Scripture. But personal responsibility isn't the end all. And we certainly ought not forget that the Bible commands us to, uh, as Christians, care for our neighbors as well as we care for ourselves. The title of the sermon is, It Escapes Me. And it's titled that way because sometimes we get so wrapped up in ourselves, what we need for the future, that others, they simply slip beyond the reaches of our memory, especially others who are beneath our notice in a particular way, uh, those whom everyone who are our friends would come together and say, oh, yes, those people really don't need to be noticed. But aren't we forgetting something? Aren't you forgetting something? Are we simply saying, I was supposed to remember something, but it escapes me. Well, the something are people. And Jesus, he's giving instructions here about uh, what it means to be a disciple. In our passage here, Jesus uses a child as an example of an other person that tends to get ignored. Now, a child probably wouldn't be uh, what we would uh, picture in our minds. We, of course, live in a rather child-centric culture. We tend to revere children. But Jesus, he uses a child because in the first century, that wasn't the case then. It wasn't a child-centric culture. Children had nothing to offer the first century. The children were, if they survived, really a burden. And the mortality rate could have been as high as 40%. Not many of them did survive. And then Mark, when he's writing to his audience, his audience is mostly Roman, uh, to be sure, uh, they would understand that the children, particularly the children of slaves, they're not worthy of immediate attention. And so in the first century, children could be understood as someone who's insignificant, escapes the notice. Here in our passage, what Jesus is doing is Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem, He begins to explain more clearly what's going to happen in Jerusalem, that he'll be uh, delivered, that he'll be killed, that he'll die, that he'll rise again. And as he makes his way to Jerusalem, he begins to teach his disciples about the lasting importance of what it means to be a disciple of his, even the day uh, after his death on the cross. So really what we have here in Mark 9, verse 30, is the beginning of a section that doesn't end until the very end of Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 11 is Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. But between Mark 30 and Mark 10, verse 52, he's going to teach us about the life of a disciple. Even though the disciples themselves, they don't quite understand what Jesus is referring to because they don't understand what's going to happen in Jerusalem. 
For me, I've divided this section into seven sermons, and so this is the first of seven sermons on what it means to live as a disciple of Jesus. And here in this passage, Jesus says that a true disciple is someone who embraces those of very little significance. And a disciple does this because a disciple is one of little significance themselves who've been embraced by Jesus. So here you have it. A true disciple embraces those of little, little significance because a disciple is one of little significance who's been embraced by Jesus. This is a two-point sermon, the first covering verses 30 through 34, uh, just to uh, help us understand that the disciples are the kind of people who are afraid to ask, but they're not afraid to be great. They're afraid to ask, but they're not afraid to be great. That's verses 30 through 34. And then verse 35, Jesus, he's not afraid to ask, and he's not afraid to embrace. Not afraid to ask, not afraid to embrace. So the disciples, they're afraid to ask, but they're not afraid to be great. Uh, Here the disciples are in motion. They're moving from Caesarea Philippi, as we've seen uh, earlier in Mark chapter 8, and they're making their way uh, to Galilee, to Capernaum. They're going from north to south. Ultimately, they're making their way all the way to Jerusalem. And Jesus, verse 31, tells us is teaching his disciples. We ought to understand by that that Jesus is speaking plainly to them, personally, clearly. And yet verse 30 uh, tells us that he did not want anyone to know. So he's teaching his disciples with clarity, but he doesn't want others to know with that same degree of clarity. And Jesus often did this. He would teach publicly in parables, and he'd explain the parables to his disciples. And so this is an occasion where they're making their way to Jerusalem, and Jesus is speaking with great clarity. But look at what verse 32 tells us. They did not understand, and they were afraid even to ask. Now, that's very interesting. Uh, A lack of understanding doesn't always lead to a fear of asking for more clarity, but it does in this situation. Why do you think they're afraid? Well, they're not afraid because they're afraid of the person of Jesus. Jesus is their rabbi, their teacher. Jesus is their friend. Jesus has been with them for some two and a half years. And so they're not afraid of uh, Jesus as a person. What they're afraid of is they're afraid of what he might say. You know, they know what he's teaching about. When he talks about this event in Jerusalem, they know a thing or two about that already. You can actually turn back to Mark chapter 8, verse 31. And Mark, he he doesn't use the very words of Jesus, but in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, Mark is very clear that at this time, Jesus is teaching this kind of subject matter. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this, plainly. And so the disciples, they've heard this before. They just, they they don't understand it. And, And their response to that lack of understanding is actually, well, they're afraid to ask. Why do you think they're afraid to ask? Well, they're afraid to ask because whatever it is that Jesus is saying is going to happen in Jerusalem, which they're putting two and two together, and it's beginning to make more sense. It involves death and it involves uh, raising again from the dead. This is not the future that they want to happen. It's not their plan. That's their fear. 
If they get more details, they're just going to hear more of what they don't want to hear. It's not their plan. Now, there's actually, I believe, a corollary in this for us today. There are times when we need more information, but we're afraid to ask. Being a, a, little, a, a little bit silly, sometimes children are afraid to ask mom and dad something because they're afraid of what? Because mom and dad might say no. They don't, they don't know if they can do this. They think mom and dad might say it's okay, but they're afraid to ask because they're not sure if they're going to say no. That uncertainty can manifest itself in fear. The kids don't really grow out of that. As we go to school, we're sometimes afraid to ask our, our, our teacher or our professor if we can do something, if I can use this assignment rather than this assignment. But we're afraid because of what we might hear. Do I need to study these 12 chapters or is 11 sufficient? You might hear 12. And we don't grow out of it in college either. We have this kind of fear with regards to our, our employers afraid to ask our boss if we can have this day off or if we can be gone for this length of time or if, he, if I cannot work with this particular person. And we don't grow out of it there either. We buy uh, something big like a house or a car and we're afraid to return the call of a loan officer. What's he or she going to say? And we become afraid when an oncologist is recommending treatment for our cancer. What were the results of the test? And what do I need to do now? And the disciples are afraid to ask. Jesus is charting an independent future, the kind of future that they wouldn't chart. They wouldn't do it this way. And they're afraid to ask. Now, I believe that we can garner that much even without looking at what it is that Jesus is talking about, but you see it in verse 31, and he's very clear. Jesus is teaching in a very memorable way about what's going to happen in Jerusalem. He was speaking almost rather generically in uh, Mark chapter 8, verse 31, and here he's speaking a bit more memorably. I dare say he's speaking a bit more poetically here in, in uh, 9, verse 31. By the way, he's going to do this again in chapter 10, and Jesus is going to come unglued. He's just going to give very specific details. This is going to happen in Jerusalem. You can see that in Mark chapter 10, verses 33 and 34. But here it's almost a, 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 a poetic thing. And Jesus is highlighting two things in particular, uh, and then the third, I think, comes along. But the two in particular, first of all, is this thing that's going to happen in Jerusalem, it's going to be very personal. The Son of Man is paired with the hands of men. Do you see that in verse 31? The Son of Man is paired with the hands of men. He is the Son of Man. He is the Messiah. But Jesus uses that word, a son, to say, someone like you. I'm a son of man like you. And that Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Hands of men like you. It's a very personal way to describe what's going to happen to him. He is the son of man like us who will die at the hands of men like us. So it's very personal, but it's also very deathly. This is the second thing that stands out in Mark 9 verse 31. Notice how the death is repeated unnecessarily, by the way. They will kill him, and when he is killed, 
Jesus, you only need to say that once. Just use who'll be killed. And he is killed. Death rises to the top of this explanation in 9 verse 31. So it's very personal. It's very deathly. But there's a third that kind of hangs along behind, and I think it's also very deliberate. He's going to be delivered into the hands of men, and he will rise from the dead. That, that being delivered into the hands of men and then that rising, these are things that, that actually happen to Jesus. They're things that happen outside of him. He's going to be, to be delivered. He's passive, and he's going to rise again. He's passive. It's very personal. It's very deathly and very deliberate. This is going to happen even beyond the power of Jesus himself. And so they're afraid to ask, aren't they? But they sure aren't afraid to be great. In verse 33, they come to Capernaum. This is the home of uh, Peter and Jesus. And uh, notice that Jesus, he's not afraid to ask any questions right there in verse 33. They're afraid to ask a question, and Jesus says, what were you discussing on the way? I think he probably knew not afraid to ask. But notice that all of a sudden, the disciples, they're afraid to answer. They kept silent, verse 34 tells us. And you know what's interesting? Just think about this. They kept silent in verse 34. If they didn't say anything at all, this secret they could carry with them to the grave. But they can't. Why can't they? Who's Mark getting this information from? Peter. And Peter, he fesses up. He says, I'll tell you exactly what we were talking about. Peter says, we were talking about what it meant to be the greatest and which one of us could be the greatest. And we're not actually told what Peter meant by the greatest, but all 12 of these guys, they're uh, bantering about who is going to be the greatest. The, uh, the word literally means the loudest. Who's the most important? And it's hard to know uh, how the ranking system works, if it's uh, greatness in terms of how close you are to Jesus. Remember, Jesus went up to the mountain with not all 12, just three of them. And so maybe those three are saying, hey, look, we got this on you all. So maybe it has to do with closeness to Jesus. But it, it also, that greatness, it could be just in terms of their intellect and understanding. Maybe one guy says, look, this whole Jerusalem thing, I think I got it. I pieced it together. And it could be something about intellect, not closeness to Jesus. But there's two things we know about this discussion. You ready? There's two things. I, I see this in the text, and you see this in your hearts, and I see it in my heart. The first thing we know is that they're ranking each other from 1 to 12. They're comparing each other. They're ranking each other 1 to 12. Look in verse 35. Jesus highlights the fact that he calls the 12. And what these guys are doing is they're, is they're trying to place themselves on a kind of hierarchy. And the, uh, an argument ensues. But you, you get the ranking system. The ranking system is 1 is high, 12 is low. And we do this. This ranking happens all of the time for us. We do this when we are in a conversation with someone, we're talking about our job, and our job we want them to understand is a very important job. We talk about how many people report to me. We, we talk about uh, where, where we went to college. We talk about where we put our money uh, uh, for, uh, uh, for the future. We uh, talk about our children, what our children have accomplished. We, we, we rank ourselves uh, all the time. We're comparing ourselves with others. Now, I get it. 
Maybe this doesn't actually come out of our lips. But you feel it. And I feel it. Comparison with others is very natural. We are ranking kinds of creatures. And the disciples are doing that. We know that they're ranking each other, but they're also doing something else. There's just two things here. They're ranking each other, but they're also positioning themselves for the future. Something big is going to happen, and it's going to happen very soon. Jesus is getting all serious on us, and he's speaking very plainly. And they don't quite understand, but something big is going to happen in the future. What do you do when that is in front of you? You begin to position yourself. And they're positioning themselves for this new era. I mean, look, the Pharisees, they have scribes and they have elders and they have chief priests. Presumably, we're going to have some kind of ranking system as well. And they begin to position themselves. You know, no one wants to be the secretary. No one wants to be the vice president. But in this new era, I got to position myself. So they're ranking each other and they're positioning themselves for an unknown future. And what they're missing is this that a disciple is someone of no significance whom Jesus has called and desired and appointed and loved and befriended. But before any of that, they were a, peop- a person of absolutely no significance. They are nobodies who've been embraced by Jesus and they forgot. And now they're ranking themselves and positioning themselves for the future. Now Jesus... He's not afraid to ask, and he's not afraid to embrace. And that's what happens in the close of this passage. Jesus, he's going to deal with the ranking of the disciples and the positioning uh, of the disciples. And he's going to do this with this general principle. You see it right there in verse 35. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. You see that. It's quick. And this this is all that Jesus says. I mean, imagine these men. Jesus uh, should scold them, their haughtiness and their arrogance. How dare they, loved by Jesus, but want to be better than each other and secure their own earthly future. But Jesus is so tender. And he intensifies their goal. They're arguing about the greatest. And Jesus, he says, look, you're not arguing about the greatest. You're arguing about the first, the top of the pyramid, the top of the food chain. That's what you're arguing about. You want to be second to nobody and to have everyone beneath you. You want to be first. And Jesus says, very well, then you want to be first? Then you have to be last of everyone. And you have to be servant of everyone. Jesus couldn't be more explicit. He he says, you want to be this high? No, what you really want is this high. You want to be the very champion, the very top, the one who's alone. But what you need to understand is the vast distance between that and this. You need to be last. He doubles their expectation and he flattens them. If anyone wants to be desperately first... They're going to despise second place. The more desperately you want to be first, you're going to hate second place. The more first place becomes your ultimate goal, the more second place becomes, well, your enemy. The bronze, come on, that's an insult. If first place is ultimate to you, the bronze medal is nothing. But Jesus says you're to aim for the very last. 
You want to be at the very top of the podium, and Jesus says, you know what? There is a little hollow cavity underneath the structure of the podium. That's what you should aim for. So this is a general principle, and this is a general principle, by the way, that's addressed to followers, and it really ought to be a lasting legacy in our church. The Christian church ought to be known by this. This is really what outsiders to the church ought to see. You know, they ought to see us to be a collection of individuals who aren't racing for the top, but racing for the bottom. And really what this is, is this is the entire world that's turned upside down. This is the very antithesis of the world. Our world says that our individual opinions are everything. Our world says that my personal identity is everything. Our world says that my autonomy cannot be touched by anyone else. Never step on who I am. And in the church, we're actually commanded by Jesus to show the world a different vision for human interaction. The followers of Jesus should not be racing for the top of the podium, but for the crawl space underneath it. So, this is a general principle, and it goes actually out to uh, followers, but then there's something uh, that goes uh, beyond this. Uh, Jesus, uh, he's not afraid to ask, and he's not afraid to embrace, and it's the embracing that he does next in the last two verses of our passage. He offers a general principle among his followers, if anyone would be first, must be last of all, servant of all. And in addition to this general principle, Jesus gives specific instructions for the life of a believer. He said, in verse 36, he takes a child, and he puts that child in the midst of the twelve. Remember their cultural view of children. This child would have been ignored. Not only would the disciples have been happy to ignore the child, but the child itself would have been happy to be ignored. Off in the corner, ignored by the adults, and Jesus reaches into the dark corner and he pulls the child out, surprising everyone, including the child. And he puts the child right in the middle. You see how clear Mark is. Puts Jesus, he puts the child right in the middle of the disciples, and then Jesus, in verse 36, he enfolds this child in his arms. The word's very personal. He enfolds a child in his arms, and as he does so, he's speaking. He talks. You know, Mark creates these images all the time, and we gloss right over them, and I don't want to be a preacher that allows you to do that. Stop. Look at what's happening here. Jesus, he puts this child in front of the disciples, and then Jesus, he enters into that realm of the child, with the child, and he grabs this child. He would have to get on his knees, and he holds this child while he is teaching. Don't you remember? These disciples should have been scolded, each and every one of them, and yet this is how Jesus teaches them. And who could miss this? Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. I want to encourage you not to read this passage as if it is a conversion passage. This isn't about how to be converted. Receive Jesus like you would a child, and you'll be converted. That's, that's not what the passage is about. The passage is a, is a lesson to these hard-hearted, selfish, arrogant disciples about what it looks like to live the life of a follower of Jesus. Christians are to be the kind of people who embrace the insignificant in our world. And Jesus, he doesn't hammer out the details about what this looks like. What does it look like, Jesus, to embrace those who are marginalized and insignificant, those who we all agree it's okay to ignore? What exactly does that look like, Jesus? And he doesn't answer that question. 
Who, Jesus, is insignificant? All the hands should go up in the room. Who then is insignificant? And if the insignificant person is to be avoided because of sin, should we still hug them? And if the insignificant is ruining something that we cherish, should we, should we still love that person? Is, is it okay if their gender is different? Is it okay if their ethnicity is different? Is it okay if their political station, if their socioeconomic level is different? Jesus, he doesn't answer those questions. What does it mean, uh, Jesus, to embrace? Is that just a cold hug and then move on? How close should I be? to those whom culture gives me the permission to ignore. This would be so much easier if Jesus would just fill in all of those gaps. And so I know that the little hands in your hearts are going up with all of these questions, but there's two things that we need to take to heart before we leave this passage, and this is what I want to conclude with. Again, there isn't a fine-tuned application here. That's okay. The Holy Spirit wants, wants it that way. But there's two things that stand out. The first is the setting is in a home. The setting's in a home. For the insignificant to be embraced, the first application is that the embracing takes place in the life of the church and the insignificant are with us. You know, we all gather together on a Sunday and we all think, hey, we love each other as a church family. Uh, we, are, we are a covenant family. It's even, it's, it's emblazoned on the sign beside the street. Uh, we love being together. No one here feels unwelcome. Can you stop saying that, even to yourself? There are some people who are here and they're not sure they want to be here. There are some people who are here for which this kind of community is actually really difficult for them. There are some people who are here who are still not sure they'll be loved by the entire body. There are some people who are here who are still putting up large walls of self-protection around them. There are some people who are here who are waiting for something to happen so that they can dart. Some of that is excusable, some of it isn't excusable, but the first application of this passage is a focus on our own family life. There are people here who you know feel insignificant. You know that they feel marginalized and ignored. You know that they struggle to be a part of this body. Sensitize your heart to them that you might find them so that you can embrace them, care for them. May they not feel welcome. May they not feel unwelcome. <laughs> Great application just turned backwards by misspeaking. That's the first thing. Let me conclude with this. If there's a focus on the home, there are those who are easily ignored in our very midst, embrace them. The second application is this. It may be that what Jesus is saying to the disciples is the person who is insignificant is the person who's most a threat to your greatness. Greatness and firstness are very much the context of this passage, and it could be that recognizing those who are uh, insignificant, those who uh, you uh, find easy to ignore, it may be that those are the people who, for whatever reason, are a biggest threat to your own greatness. These are the ones who challenge your desire to be first. And it could be evidence of a covetous heart of your own, but this, this I think, is, is, a, is a, an, a, an application for us. Who are the insignificant? They're those who are in the church, but they also might be those people who seem to be the biggest threat to you, the kind of people that tend to make you look bad and feel bad about yourself because they've done everything right and they have everything that you want.
This would extend into the workplace. It leaves the church family. These are the people in the workplace who you think maybe are going to advance in the career better than you will. And these are the people in the workplace uh, that uh, you think are going to do something to you that will hurt you in your career. Maybe those are the insignificant ones simply because those are the ones that you want to be great over and first over. So there's a focus on the home, and there's a focus on those who threaten your greatness. Those are the ones who are insignificant. But keep in mind this. Jesus is just beginning, and he's talking about what it means to be a true disciple. And he says, a true disciple is someone who embraces those of little significance. But here's the only reason why we can do that. This room is filled with people of little significance. This room, this room has just listened to a sermon preached by someone of little significance. This is how Christianity works in the world. A people who don't deserve grace are made servants of the king, and the king has won. This is how Christianity works. A true disciple embraces those of little significance because they are ones of little significance who have been embraced already. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for preaching to me this morning, and thank you for preaching to us this morning. Would you go with us into this day and this week that we might be a people who are captivated by our own insignificance and your great love for us that then pours out into love for the insignificant. In Jesus' name, amen.